First Timothy this morning, chapter 4. <clears throat> and we're going to read from uh, verse 1. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, <clears throat> giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrine, uh, doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and uh, commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. <clears throat> and let's commit our time this morning to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord and Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you uh, for the opportunity to come this morning and gather together around your word. And we pray that, Lord, this morning you would uh, open our eyes and our ears to your word, that you would uh, teach us, you instruct us through it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just uh, empower me through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance as I speak this morning. It will be your words, it will be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would receive all the glory, the honour, and the praise. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, Sunday evenings, we've been going through the book of First Timothy and being holiday time. Um, we're going to look at First Timothy this morning in our first service. And if you remember, those who were here last time we were in the book of First Timothy, we started looking at chapter 4 and we uh, saw that at the start of chapter 4 here, Paul begins addressing uh, once again the issue of false teachers and indeed apostasy entering into the church. Uh, Paul had, of course, begun the letter by charging young Timothy to take a stand there at Ephesus, to stand against the false teachers that were threatening that local church. And now here at the beginning of chapter 4, he once more returns to that topic. So he sort of turned away from that in chapter 2 and 3. He talked about how we should worship uh, and our roles in worship. And now he comes back to this idea of apostasy threatening the church, and not just Ephesus, but the church in general. And we considered last time the warning that's given here in verse 1 and 2, okay, where it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So we looked at these two verses last time. We saw that in verse 1, Paul, <clears throat> he tells Timothy here that, you know, that God had prophetically revealed to him by the Spirit that apostasy would come in the latter times. And we looked at that phrase, latter times. We said it's different from last days. Now, this phrase, latter times, refers to periods of time yet future. And so it's periods of time yet future to when Paul is writing these words. Uh, and in other words, the Spirit is revealing to him that there would be seasons of apostasy right throughout the church age. And they basically began soon after Paul writes this, and they've continued right throughout the church age, these seasons, these periods of apostasy, a turning away from the faith. And then at the end of verse 1, Paul declares that the source of this apostasy would be seducing spirits. Okay, he says, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So just as the Holy Spirit 
guides and leads us into all truth. There are also these seducing spirits, which of course are you know, the devil, his fallen angels who serve him. These false spirits, they lead men away from the truth. Okay, these seducing spirits. They lead men into false doctrine, which is here called by Paul the doctrine of devils. And then finally, we saw in verse 2, that Paul describes the human agents that these seducing spirits will use. He says in verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So he says that the, these seducing spirits will use hypocritical liars who have seared their conscience. And hypocrisy, of course, speaks about the fact that they wear a mask of holiness, but within they're full of corruption. And seared, with a hot, uh, seared their conscience with a hot iron speaks of the fact that they don't care that they're leading men away from the truth. Okay? They've hardened their conscience, so they feel no shame, no guilt at leading men astray. And that brings us now this morning to see that in verse 3 to 5 here, Paul now outlines some of the false teaching that these apostates will bring, that they will teach. And then he also gives us a scriptural defense against this apostasy, this teaching. So notice with me firstly this morning the false doctrine of these teachers, the false doctrine of these teachers. Verse, one, uh, verse 3 sorry, says, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. At the start of verse 3, Paul outlines for us the false teaching, the, the false doctrine that these hypocritical liars will bring, these apostates will bring. He says there, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. And so immediately we learn that their doctrine is one of legalism. Okay, it's, it's, that's at the heart of the matter. It's one of legalism. They teach that righteousness is obtained by the things that we do or we don't do. Righteousness by works. And in particular here, we see that righteousness, these teachers, okay, they teach that righteousness is obtained by abstaining from certain pleasures of life, marriage and meats. And this kind of doctrine is called asceticism. And asceticism is defined as a severe self-discipline and avoiding all forms of indulgence. Or another commentator said, he said, the renunciation of the comforts of life with a view to attaining happiness and perfection. And so the asceticism taught by these false teachers proclaims that we are made holy by denying our flesh, our bodies, these pleasures of life. And in particular here, denying, uh, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. These are the two uh, primary ones that he points out here that they will teach us to abstain from these apostates. And so the first of these forbidding to marry is the teaching that the celibate life is a more spiritual life. To remain single is a more spiritual life. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that these false teachers, these apostates will prohibit marriage altogether, but rather it's the idea that it will form some part of their teaching. And usually they're teaching, sorry, they teach that a certain class of people within that church must be celibate. Barnes writes this, he says, they would regard such a state, 
for certain persons as a more holy than the married condition and would consider it as so holy that they would absolutely prohibit those who wish to be most holy from entering into the relation. So these false teachers, these apostates, Paul says that they will teach that to obtain a greater spirituality, to become more holy, you must remain unmarried. And we see secondly that their false doctrine will also include a command to abstain from meats. As we saw with the command against marriage, this is the teaching that by not eating meats, you are made holy. Now, the word translated meats here is the Greek word broma, okay? and it literally means food of any kind. And so it's more than just meat. It's talking about abstaining from food in general, okay? abstaining from uh, certain foods, either uh, completely or you know, at certain seasons, okay? that you have, must abstain from these things. And so the implication being that by keeping these fasts, okay, abstaining from food in these certain periods of time and abstaining from certain foods, by keeping these fasts, you are made holy. You gain some spiritual um, gain with the Lord, if you like, and become closer to Him by keeping these fasts. And this was a false teaching that the Apostle Paul actually faced in his lifetime. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Colossians Chapter 2, Colossians 2 and verse 20, it says, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to, all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of worship, uh, wisdom sorry, and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Here we see that Paul, he writes to the Colossian believers about this very problem, this very false doctrine. You know, legalistic, legalistic teachers commanding that they must abstain in order to be holy. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Must abstain in order to be holy. And Paul declares that these teachings, he says they have an appearance of wisdom, but in fact they are worthless. He says that there in verse 23, he says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And so they have a, a show of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom, but in reality they are worthless. They don't add anything to your holiness. So the point is holiness can never be achieved by obeying a set of laws, either doing things or abstaining, as we're looking at here this morning, abstaining from certain things. Indeed, God's word is clear that abstaining from these things or doing these things does not make you holy. But as Paul prophesied here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as Paul prophesied here, this always uh, falls, sorry, this always is the hallmark of the apostate church's teaching. Okay? That's what he's getting at here this morning. He says, you want to know how you recognize the apostates? Well, they will teach this. They will teach that by abstaining, you are holy. Okay? They will teach the doctrine of devils, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. And you know, we can see this prophetically, reveal, uh, prophetically fulfilled down throughout the church age, can't we? 
You, know, you look back through church history and you can see how this has been fulfilled in various different groups. I mean, not long after this, we had the Gnostics come along and this was one of their prominent teachings that you must abstain in order to be holy. Abstain from marriage and abstain from certain foods, fast in order to be holy, get closer to the Lord. And then, of course, today as we look around, we can see this teaching clearly evident in various different cults, various different churches. But the one that immediately comes to mind for me is the Roman Catholic Church. We can see how this is a prophecy concerning the apostate church. And the Roman Catholic Church is indeed an apostate church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that those that would be part of the priestly order must have taken a vow of celibacy. And they view those who remain celibate as being more holy before God. Barnes writes this, he says, The 10th article of the decree of the Council of Trent in relation to marriage will show the general view of the papacy on that subject. It says this, Whosoever shall say that the married state is to be preferred to a state of virginity or celibacy, and that it is not better and more blessed to remain in virginity or celibacy than to be joined in marriage, let him be accursed. It's from the, the uh, Roman Catholic's own writings. That's how they view us, that it is better, it is more holy to remain celibate, to remain single. It's the clear teaching of the Catholic Church. It, fil- it falls clearly into this category of forbidding to marry. The Catholic Church also commands that you must abstain from eating certain foods, certain meats during Lent. They teach that if you fail to observe these days of Lent, you fail to fast, then you are committing sin. You are sinning against God. And so in our day, we can see these prophetic words clearly fulfilled in the Catholic Church. And you know, it shouldn't surprise us that God's word prophetically pointed out that this would happen. Okay, prophetically revealed so clearly the largest apostate church in the world today, the Catholic Church. But of course, we see it fulfilled in other churches as well, don't we? You know, you look around at any church, any cult that teaches asceticism as a way of becoming holy, becoming more spiritual, they are teaching that which is contrary to God's word. They are teaching the doctrine of devils. They are apostates and we are to be wary of them. Concerning this whole teaching, the commentator Gusick, he writes this. He says, Men think that if we sacrifice something for God, such as the right to marry or to eat certain foods, then he, gives us, then he owes us something. This is legalism at its worst, trying to manipulate God into giving us something. Countless millions through the centuries have sought to sacrifice something and make God owe them blessing or forgiveness or mercy or whatever. That is the religion of self-flagellation. It is not the relationship with Jesus Christ described in the New Testament. Now, we might look at this this morning and think, well, we don't really have a problem with this. But, you know, it's easy to fall into this idea that if I give up or I do certain things, that I gain standing with God. Now, the Word of God does teach us about abstaining from sin and abstaining from certain things and being self Uh, self-denial, being willing to give up things for Christ if he asks us to, to serve him. But this idea that if I do certain things, I gain standing with God, that goes against the word of God. Indeed, it's the religion of self-flagellation. It's not the relationship 
that God wants us to have with Christ. And so having declared the teaching of these men, these apostates, made it very clear for us so we can see it, and we can see it in the world today, Paul now refutes their teaching for us. He gives us the defense against it to show us clearly why it's wrong. And so let's consider secondly here this morning Paul's refutation of the doctrine. Let's read verse 3 again. It says, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so Paul now proceeds to prove the doctrine of these false teachers is against the very word of God. Now the word translated which, okay, there in verse 3, okay, this is forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received. The word which there is the plural pronoun ha. And it indicates to us that what follows now applies to both teachings concerning marriage and concerning food. Okay, both are included. Oftentimes when we read this passage, we sort of apply everything from this point on to this idea of abstaining from food. But it actually applies to both. Okay, at least that seems to be the indication here in the passage. It applies to both. Okay, Paul gives us a series of arguments as to why both teachings are wrong. The first of his arguments is that these privileges were created by God. These privileges were created by God. Look there again in verse 3. He says, Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Paul starts out his defense by declaring, he says, which God hath created. Paul declares that God created both the marriage relationship and God created the enjoyment of food. And therefore, they're his design for mankind. And we see this clearly from the creation account, don't we? In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Let's just turn to Genesis chapter 2 for a moment. In Genesis chapter 2, God, of course, looking out upon his creation, he sees man and he says it's not good for man to be alone. And so what does God do? He creates a helpmeet, the woman, for Adam. Let's look in chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and helpmeet for him. And if you drop down to verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they're both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now here we see clearly, you know, God says it's not good for man to be alone. He creates the very first woman, Eve, and God brings them together in the very first marriage relationship. God created both and God created the relationship of marriage. It is his good created purpose for mankind. And the same is true concerning the food that we eat. In Genesis chapter 1, 
God commanded Adam and Eve to eat of every tree of the garden, to enjoy it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 <clears throat> says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, and which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. You know, here we see at creation at the very beginning, God gave Adam and Eve freedom to eat of whatever they wanted in the garden of Eden. There was no restriction on what man could eat, other than, of course, not to partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But every fruit, fruit sorry, every herb, every vegetable was given to man for food. And we also see that after the flood, mankind was instructed to eat meat. Genesis chapter 9. Just turn there, Genesis 9. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1 <clears throat> says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall we meet for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. <clears throat> and so after the flood... God very clearly instructed Noah and his family, instructed mankind to eat meat as well. Meat was given to us by God for our enjoyment and sustenance. Now, of course, it doesn't mean you can't choose not to eat, but you can't expect by abstaining that you're going to gain a relationship with God. That's the focus here this morning, isn't it? Okay, you can't expect that by abstaining from certain foods, you're going to become more spiritual. That's the point that we're looking at. And Paul goes on in verse 3, to declare that these things were created by God to be received with thanksgiving. He says in verse 3, he says, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving. Now the word translated to be received here comes from a noun that means participation or partaking of. And so it's clear that God intended for us to participate, to partake of these things but to do so with thanksgiving, with gratitude in our hearts. In other words, recognizing them as being his good gifts, recognizing that they came from him, that he created them and gave them to us. Kent writes this, <clears throat> he says, It is the obligation of men to partake of these privileges with gratitude. To cast reflection upon their sanctity is to dispute the wisdom, purpose and morality of God and to thwart his intention. You see, God <coughs> created them. God gave them to us. And so to teach us to abstain from them is to question the very morality of God. You know, the false teachers, apostates, question the wisdom of God, don't they? They question the wisdom of God in creating these things and in commanding us to partake of them. And Paul then adds, <coughs> sorry, he ends the verse but making it very clear that these things were not just intended for mankind, they were intended specifically for the believer. At the end of the verse, it says, <clears throat> which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. <clears throat> you know, all men can partake of these wonderful gifts that God has created, but only those who believe and know the truth can truly appreciate and give thanks to God for these gifts. 
Now the words here, it says, <clears throat> of them, okay, uh, to be received with thanksgiving, of them which believe. Those words, of them, in the Greek, they're a dative, which means they actually mean for them. For them, and they connect back with the words, created to be received. And so literally we could translate the whole phrase here, created for participation with thanksgiving for them which believe. That's, that's what the word's saying. That's what it's saying. God created these things for participation with thanksgiving for us as believers. You see, the deity makes it very clear that the marriage relationship and the food that we eat was created for believers to enjoy. You see, the seducing spirits... I hope you begin to understand here, the seducing spirits, they would have men believe the very opposite is true. They twist God's word around and they want us to believe the very opposite. That these things that God created for us are instead to be denied from us in order to become more spiritual, more holy before God. You see, it's not the doctrine of God, it's the doctrine of devils. That's what Paul's whole point is. It's the doctrine of devils. It goes against the very word of God. So it's clear that God created these things for us to participate in, partake of with thanksgiving. And then Paul secondly argues here that these privileges were created good. They were created good. Look in verse 4. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For he is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Paul now continues on to declare that not only did God create these things, but God created them good. He created them good. We read here it says, For every creature of God is good. Now the word creature here means product or created thing. So the word speaks of more than just those things that live and move. Okay, that's how we, when we read the word creature, we immediately think of the creatures. Okay, anything that lives, anything that moves. The word means more than that. Okay, it means creation in general. And so really what Paul declares here is that every creation, every created thing of God is good. Now as we saw, the marriage relationship and food were both part of God's creation. And indeed, at the end of God's creation, God said what? He said that it was very good. Go back to Genesis 1 quickly. Genesis chapter 1. I know we know these verses, but let's just read it. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 1 verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. As God looked out upon his creation, the end of his creative work, God declared it all to be very good. Every part of his creation. And that includes marriage and includes food. All these things were created good and created for the believer. Kent writes this, he says, The person who argues that Marriage or eating is a moral or spiritual flaw, is calling something evil that God has pronounced good. It's important for us to understand that. They are calling something evil that God has pronounced good. See, all of God's creation is good, marriage and food included. It's good when used as God intended. 
And in the next part of the verse, we see that. In verse 4 there, it says, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. The word translated to be refused here literally means to be thrown away. And it has the sense of something being called taboo. So the point is clear. If God has created it good, it's not for us to throw it away and call it taboo. But it's also true that even good things like this can be abused, can't they? Good things can be abused. They can be used in the wrong way. And therefore, it's important for us to use these good gifts as God intended. And we see that truth conveyed in the next words, if it be received with thanksgiving. You see, these things are to be partaken of with thanksgiving. We are to partake with a right understanding that these are good gifts from Almighty God. We are to partake with thanksgiving, gratitude in our hearts. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the unsaved cannot partake of these things with gratitude, can they? They cannot partake of these things as God intended, with thanksgiving. And so as such, they do not honor God in their marriage relationships, and we see that in the world today. And they do not honor God in the food that they eat, and we see that in the world today. Because they do not have gratitude, thanksgiving in their heart towards God for what God has given them. They're unsaved. They don't understand this. Gil writes this, he says, If it be received with thanksgiving, if not, persons are ungrateful and very unworthy of such favors, and it would be just in God to withhold them from them. You see, these are God's good gifts to be received with thanksgiving. To abstain from them is to be ungrateful, unthankful for what God has given us. And abstaining, as we've said this morning, doesn't make us more righteous, doesn't make us more holy. It actually rejects God's gifts and demonstrates an unthankful heart. And Paul then concludes the whole thing with verse 5. He says, For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. He declares that these things are sanctified through the word of God and prayer. In other words, we partake of these good gifts with thanksgiving. Why? In the knowledge that God's word has declared them holy and good. And we partake with prayer giving thanks unto Him. And so let us this morning as believers praise God for the wonderful good gifts that He has given unto us, including but not limited to marriage and food. These are just two examples, aren't they? Let's give thanks to God for the good gifts He's given us. Partake and enjoy, but do so with thanksgiving unto God. Let's close this morning with the word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, these... Passages are at times difficult, Lord, where we consider apostasy, false teaching. And Lord, we do see these teachings in churches around us, the apostate church. And Lord, it's good for us to know the defense against such teachings. Lord, so that if we are confronted with it by others, we can answer them from the word of God. Lord, we thank you so much that these things were created by you and they are created good. And Lord, they are to be received with thanksgiving. And may, Lord, indeed, we partake of these good gifts and others with thanksgiving unto you. For indeed, every good gift cometh down from the Father above. We thank you for your word. We pray you bless it to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.